right, I'm going to grab a music stand. Can I? Oh, thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> there was a guy who couldn't walk. 38 years, he couldn't walk. And he was willing to do anything. He was willing to do anything to walk again. And so he laid day and night by a pool. Day and night. Pool of Siloam. And, and it was thought that this, this water had some medicinal value. It was fed by a spring. Maybe we're kind of struggling today with, with what that pool was used for. Perhaps for ritual watch, washing, ritual purity. But he laid there. And one day, Jesus came by the pool and looked at him and said, Do you want to be made well? Well, obviously, he's laying right there waiting. And he says, I, I, I want to be made well. I, I just never get a chance. E- even when the water is stirred, I can't get to the pool because no one will help me in. And even when I try to crawl my way there, someone else goes in front of me. I mean, you think about this guy. This guy has no friends. I mean, at least no friends in that area to even help him get into the pool when when this spring is feeding the pool and the water starts stirring, he can't even get in. Whether he thought he would be healed by getting in or whether it was a ritual bath just just to devote himself to God, he couldn't even get in. And so Jesus says to him, pick up your mat or pick up your bed and walk. And of course, you know, he hasn't walked and he's just laying there, and, and he has to... There's an act of will, an act of faith involved in that. And the guy stands up. And he walks, and he picks up his mat. And unfortunately, that's working on the Sabbath day. This, this was a Sabbath. It was a Saturday. And you're not supposed to work. You're not supposed to walk carrying a burden. And his bed was a burden. And so the religious leaders saw him do this and said, Wait a minute. This, this guy, Jesus, is healing on the Sabbath day. This is wrong. And they wanted to kill him. And Jesus said to them, Look, my father's been working ever since the beginning. My father works on a Sabbath day. And I also do my father's work on a Sabbath day. And then he says, I'm just doing what my dad wants me to do. As as my father gives life to people, I give life to people too. Even on a Sabbath day, I bring life. And he said, you know, I, I understand the problem here. He says, because I'm testifying that if you believe in the Son that the Father has sent, you also have life. In fact, you've passed over from death into life. Says, but, but, but I know the problem, that, that if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is not valid. We, we go back to the Old Testament law, and you've got to have two people to verify a testimony. He says, so it just so happens that there's this guy named John the Baptist. And he's the second person to testify that I am who I claim to be. And you enjoyed John's testimony for a while. But now I'm giving testimony for myself. My testimony is heavier, greater than John's is. You, you should listen to me. Because I'm saying this so that you might be saved. I am only doing the work that my Father's given me to do. And my work testifies that my testimony that I'm giving is true. My work proves it, even on a Sabbath day. And that's John chapter 5.
paraphrased. Jesus testifies to his own uh, authority, his own truthfulness, and, and, he, and he gives it to him. He says, I, I know you're not going to listen to me because you've got to have a witness. My witness that testifies that what I'm saying is true is John the Baptist. In fact, later, when Jesus would stand before Pilate, they were having this talk about, is what you're telling me true? Can we get that verse up, that, that first passage? Um, Jesus, uh, Pilate says, you're a king then. You're saying that you're a king. And Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus says that there's a number of places in the Gospels where Jesus says, this is why I came. Here's the reason. Here's why I came. You know, I, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. There's a number of these passages, and this is one of them. I came to testify to the truth. And everybody on the side of truth listens to me. So Jesus is, Jesus is the true witness. He's the true witness. If you care about truth in this life, you're going to listen to the words of Jesus. You're going to agree with them, and you're going to share them with other people that need to hear it. When the religious leaders got mad at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, it was a clash of, of truth. Jesus, if you really come from the Father, in fact, if you and the Father are one, then you have all the authority you need to heal on the Sabbath, to do good on the Sabbath, because you're the one that defines what Sabbath day is about. You have that authority, and we're going to trust your truth. And they couldn't do that. They just couldn't go there and believe him. I was talking to a young man after a funeral service one time, and, you know, we got into this conversation because he came up to me and said, Pastor, I love the words that you shared. They were wonderful. And, I, and he said, I loved how you didn't force your truth onto everybody else here. You didn't, you didn't force it on anybody. You, you, just, you just proclaimed your convictions, and, and, and if there was room if you disagreed. Now, whenever somebody says that to me, like you didn't force it on anybody, there's a part of me that's really happy that they say that because I don't want to be offensive and in your face. And, and you know, There's a part of me that worries, was I strong enough in what I was preaching? Was it bringing conviction? You know, I, I kind of worry about that a little bit. And so I, I said to him, uh, well, well, tell me how you took it. I mean, I'm glad, that, I'm glad that I didn't offend other people in this room, including yourself, but how did you take the words that I preached? And he said, I, I have a hard time with it. I have a hard time with the truth of Scripture. And he proceeded to tell me that he, had got, he was going to go to seminary and be a pastor. Now this... This, of course, really gets my interest. Because, okay, you, were gonna, you wanted to be a pastor at one point in your life, and now you're doubting the truth of Scripture. And so we talked for a while on that, and he shared his story with me a bit. And, uh, and then it came to that moment where it was like, am I going to challenge this guy? Am I, am I going to give it to him and say, you, you need to come underneath the authority of Scripture again, young man. You know, you, you've left this. And I don't remember the exact words that I said all that I remember was I, I did encourage him to consider the claims of Christ on his life. That it wasn't just a nice thing for Christians. It, it's, it's a claim on the world. It, the authority of Jesus extends to everybody. Everybody that has an ear to hear, let him hear. That Christ loves them, and if they will accept his words, they can pass from death to life, as John chapter 5 says. 
And I remember leaving that conversation and I was just kind of, I just felt kind of blah because on, on the one hand, I know that God got me into that conversation and I'm just not sure that I was happy with the weight of my testimony. Uh, were, were my words powerful enough? And that's something that we all kind of, don't, don't we wrestle with that as Christians? Like, do I have the words to share? Sometimes I've talked to people in the church and they say, I, I'm concerned that when I get into a conversation with somebody, I've got to speak about Jesus and I don't know if I have the right words to say. I think the passage in Revelation chapter 11 that we're going to look at today addresses that basic feeling that we get as Christians that do I got it in me to convince somebody that Jesus is the Christ? Because, and a lot of you I know as you're listening to me go, yeah, I know you're going with this because it's not our words that have to do the convincing. It's the spirit that works through them. But, but how do you deal with that feeling of, I could have said more. I should have said more. I missed a chance. Or I didn't have the right way of, of going about it that sometimes we feel. So go to Revelation chapter 11. And I want, I want to deal with that, that testimony issue that we feel sometimes. As you go there, can, can you put up the, uh, the court image that I, that I gave you, Jim, to, to put up? Sometimes I feel like this, right? <laughs> I'm testifying to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, right? But, but I feel like it's like the three stooges. Like people look at you like you're one of those religious crazy people. At the very least, I can say I'm a pastor, so I'm, I'm paid to be crazy, you know, and, 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 and believe this stuff. But I don't know what your excuse is. <laughs> But, but sometimes I feel this, you know, like people are looking at me like, you're nuts. I, I'm not going to believe that in a million years. I don't care what you swear on in the Bible that you say is true. That's crazy. This morning, um, we're going to uh, we're gonna look at two witnesses to the truth of God. Two witnesses. And these witnesses in the end times have been interpreted in a variety of ways. I want to give you two major views before we even start looking at them. This is in your notes, in your bulletin. You're going to pull it out. Um, that's where we're going this morning. These two witnesses have been interpreted in two major ways. If you're a futurist, okay? <laughs> if you think Revelation was fulfilled in the first century, then, then you would probably see this a little bit differently. But if you believe Revelation, most of Revelation is yet to come, you're probably saying of these two prophets that we're going to look at in just a minute, you're probably saying these two guys are either two end times prophets that proclaim the truth to the world during the seven-year tribulation. Two prophets that God raises up. Second major view is that these two prophets stand for the church. And the church that's there during the seven-year tribulation, and, and whether you believe the church is, is cut up with Jesus, that, then you might say there's going to be people that believe in Christ during that seven-year tribulation that say, I was wrong for so many years, and I get it, and I believe in Christ. You know, it stands for their testimony to the world during the seven-year tribulation. Now, you might think, since we talked about the 144,000 and I kind of took a symbolic view of that, um, you might think that I would say that these two witnesses are the church. But actually, I lean towards saying 
these are these two prophets are really two prophets that God's going to raise up. And let's take a look at why. Uh, again, this is one of the most difficult passages in Revelation. Uh, people, uh, it was a headache this week, so let me tell you. But um, I think we're okay, and I think, I think it's going to be good. So uh, let's take a look and see. And if you walk out going, I'm scratching my head too, that's okay. You know, you can ask God to help you this week with it. Kind of wrestle with it a bit and, and see, where, see where Christ takes you, okay? Uh, as we prayed earlier, we have the mind of Christ. Revelation 11, uh, verse 1, John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court, don't measure it, because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Pause. Uh, so, so John, you're supposed to measure the temple. A lot of people believe that in the end times, there's, there's going to be a literal temple rebuilt for the people of Israel to worship in. There's this restoration uh, of Israel's worship. And so this temple is built, and, 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 and so it says measure the temple and, and count how many people are in there, how many worshipers we have there. And then it says, and by the way, they're going, there's going to be this trampling of the holy city, which we would understand as Jerusalem, for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. Three and a half years. A lot of interpreters say, if you've got a seven-year tribulation before Christ comes back, the last three and a half years, there's going to be a trampling of the people of God. That the Antichrist will come, who we haven't been introduced to yet in this, in this Revelation series, but he will come and he will trample the people of God. He will oppose them with a violent force. Again, the temple is interpreted different ways. Physical temple. Um, I lean a little bit towards uh, that the temple refers to the people in it, that, that our bodies are now the temple of God. We are the temple, so this refers to the people of God. But um, however you want to deal with that, that's that. Verse 3. I will give my power to two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Again, that's three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth, a sign of mourning. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, from this passage, I believe God is trying to tell his church, this is how I verify that what you say is true. When you talk to somebody about the claims of Christ on their life. Here's how I verify my word from your mouth. Number one, I verify it through miracles. Okay, God verifies the testimony of his witnesses, you and me, through miracles. Now, their miracles are um, of the Moses and Elijah type. Did you catch the analogy going on here? I think it's very intentional, okay? 
Moses stands before Pharaoh in that famous Old Testament story and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. And Moses says, okay, we're turning the Nile River to blood. The frogs are coming. Darkness. What happens in Revelation 11? Waters turn to blood. Okay? A a clear hearkening back to Moses' ministry. And then you've got Elijah, right? Elijah, years and years and years later, okay, Elijah, during the time of the kings, Elijah comes onto the scene and calls people to worship the true God. And then you have, you have all these people that should be God's people, and instead they're worshiping Baal, right? And, and Elijah confronts them at Mount Carmel, and, and they have this huge prophetic confrontation that I would have loved to see. And, and, and Elijah says, okay, let's see whose God can send fire from the skies onto this altar. Let's see whose God can do that, right? Remember the priests of Baal? They were, they were doing their ritual dances and ritual things and, and cutting themselves. No fire. Elijah has water dumped onto the sacrifice just to prove the point and prays to the God of heaven and God sends fire down and consumes. and consumes the whole altar. It's amazing. These prophets, I tend to think that, that it says fire comes from their mouths I tend to think that they're not fire-breathing prophets, okay? I tend to think that when they speak, they have the power, like Elijah, to call fire down from the skies. Now, a lot of people struggle with that, right? And I wonder if even the young man I spoke to after the funeral struggles with the miracles of the Bible, right? Because we don't see fire hitting people. I, I can't call that down. If I could, the church would probably be empty because you all be living in fear of me, right? You know, <laughs> don't don't have that, and I wouldn't use it. But but um, I, I've often thought about this, and I remember somebody saying that miracles in the Bible often happen in clusters, don't they? You know, that, that the ministry of Moses and Aaron was accompanied by miracles. The ministry of Elijah and Elisha. I mean, they were raising people back to life. Miracles were happening at that time. But, but if you look throughout the pages of Scripture, God is active, but you don't, often, you don't always see miracle workers. You see God working, but there's these clusters of time in history, these clusters of years where miracles happen on a larger scale than, than is seen at other times. And it seems like this last seven years is one of those times when you've got two problems. By the way, this is one of the reasons I think these two prophets don't stand for the church. They're actually literally two guys that God raises up is because they follow in the footsteps of Moses and Elijah. They, they do what Moses does and they do what Elijah does. They call down fire. They plague the earth and people hate them for it. He, th- this is during the time of the trumpets, okay? A lot of times what happens in Revelation is like you've got seven seals, seven trumpet judgments, and then and then God lets you kind of take a magnifying glass and kind of we kind of zero in on a certain here's what's happening during the trumpets you got two prophets and they're doing this work and god testifies to the to the truth of their words through miracles now however this however you might look at this god is obviously active today obviously when when we pray there are times when god just steps in and does a miracle Right? He, he, just, he just accomplishes something amazing. And, and we get to talk about those things. I mean, I think about, I mean, my last one what, what, what was very clearly, it was the accident in Uganda, you know, flipping in the van, and I'm okay, 
And it was just like that Ugandan pastor said, you're going to be okay. Before it happened, he said that to me. I mean, that's a miracle that, that, that we walked away from that. So, so God at times steps into your life and confirms your words by something that just shouldn't happen, and, and it happens. See, that's a miracle, and you can talk about it with people. This is what happened in my life. Here's how God entered into my life and did this amazing work. It's a miracle. Um, Hebrews also agrees with this. Hebrews 2, if you could get that up there. Um, verse 3, uh, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. The fact that I'm standing up here preaching is a miracle of God. I tell you because I hated public speaking in high school. I hated it in college. And then suddenly, I mean, I remember first year of college, I was part of Inner City Impact, downtown Chicago. And I remember Louie was the director of that ministry. He was a big guy, big guy. And he had authority. And, and so you had all these inner city kids getting together, playing basketball, hanging out together. When it was time for Louie to give the talk, they were quiet. They were, I mean, it was amazing. Like, they were so rowdy on the basketball court, and we kind of had to sometimes, you know, stop the fights from happening. I mean, it was just kids off the street. But when Louie talked, quiet. It was quiet. I remember one day Louie said to us, the, the, the Moody Bible Institute ministry team, he said, um, who, wants to, who, who of you wants to teach next week? And we're all like, quiet. And finally one of the guys says, I'll teach. I didn't raise my hand. I mean, I was just scared to death. Any kind of public speaking was so scary. And I tell you, that first semester, I never got up in front of that group and taught. Not once. I was scared. Maybe I should have thought about it, though, and realized, as I reflected later on it, Louis commanded that group of kids. I mean, he had authority. And if I would have gotten up there and stuttered all the way through it, I know that Louis would have said, you guys better be quiet and listen, or you're not going out there to play ball tonight. you got to listen. He had authority, right? And our God has authority to confirm your words to anybody he wants to. God has that kind of power. So trust him, open your mouth, and share the truth. He testifies to it through us. He uses spiritual gifts through us and that's a miracle okay looking back at verse 7 verse 7 now when they the two witnesses had finished their testimony the beast that comes up from the abyss the antichrist will attack them overpower and kill them their bodies will lie in the street of the great city which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Number two, then, is God verifies the testimony of his witnesses through suffering and death. Through suffering and death. So, 
You've got the beast coming up from the abyss, who we haven't even met yet until this passage. And, and, and he overpowers them. It says, they had finished their testimony. What a beautiful word for dying in Christ. When you're done testifying about Christ, that's when you can pass away and go to be with Jesus. Right? When you're done talking about the gospel, that's when you get to go. And God decides when that time is. Our brother Roy Sobolik, that he was done testifying. And so God took him home. When they were done, the beast overpowers them, and they die. Apparently they die in Jerusalem because it says, figuratively it's called Sodom and Egypt, but it's where Jesus was crucified. So they die in Jerusalem. And then it says people start celebrating, okay? They, they don't bury them for three and a half days, which, I mean... <laughs> That, it, it's improper in our day not to bury somebody. It was improper in their day. That, that, that's a shameful way to treat anybody, to, to refuse them burial. And instead, you got people coming from all these different nations, looking at them, celebrating. Here's a gift. Man, I, I'm going to go go to the jewelry store and buy a ring because these guys are dead. It's time to celebrate, right? I mean, they're giving each other gifts because of this. And it says people are watching from all over the world. Not hard to imagine in our day and age. I mean, I bet people are like, whoa. I mean, in their day, they probably thought, how would all these people from different nations see this, you know? Well, in the day, in the day and age of the internet, I mean, we would all know, wouldn't we? If two guys that plagued the earth died, we would all know. And we'd all be talking about it. And so everybody's sending gifts. Get on Amazon.com. Load that up. Let's send a gift, you know? Because these two guys that tormented us are dead. Head to the mall. God verifies the testimony of his witnesses through suffering and death. There's something about it when people in the world see a Christian suffer and not lose their faith, but remain faithful. There's something that verifies your words when you can do that. If you can be Job, whose wife says, curse God and die, and yet he doesn't do that, that verifies your words to the people in the world that are watching you. That's what Peter says too. Can we get Peter up on the screen? Uh, Peter says, even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That's one of those verses we all love, right? I'm supposed to always be ready to give an answer when the world asks me why I believe in Christ. And then it says, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil. When people come against you and slander you, it speaks to your testimony as a Christian. As long as you're doing it with gentleness and respect. If you are gently and respectfully proclaiming your faith, not rudely and uh, in, in a way of condemnation, but if you're doing it with gentleness and respect and people hate you for that, that's a good thing. Because God's going to use that and turn it on them. And a lot of those people are going to say, I've been slandering for so long and now I see that what they said was true. And I've been the wrong one. I've been the hateful one. They've just been trying to warn me, 
about the coming judgment. I'm the one. I'm the one. And I think that preaches pretty well in a world that is offended about everything. (laughs) Go ahead, get offended. I'm still going to gently and respectfully tell you the truth. And I'm going to trust God to use your slander of me to turn your heart to him. Okay? All right, let's keep going. Verse 11. After three and a half days, verse 11, a breath from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. You might want to know who said, Come up here. Well, if it's the same person that said, Come up here before in Revelation, that would be Jesus. Because John says it was the voice that sounded like a trumpet that said, come up here. And if that's the same person, that's Jesus saying, come up. Number three, God verifies the testimony of his witnesses through resurrection. Through resurrection. Um, put Romans 1, 4 up there. Uh, through the spirit of holiness, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The proof that Jesus is who He said He was is the fact that the tomb is empty. I mean, that's the dividing line for us. You know, for all the people that don't like the miracles of the Bible, the resurrection is our line in the sand saying, you, you can doubt whatever miracles you want, but if Jesus hasn't been raised, that's where we got to we got to go to war over this and say, this, what you're saying is wrong. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. He was resurrected. Because that proves that what he said was true. Um, now, go to Romans 6, verse 4. This is a great one. Um, I use this for baptism Sundays. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life. Now, I don't pull out the heavy Greek very often, but you've got to hear this one. We may live a new life. May live is an aggressive, aorist, subjunctive. It's a beautiful verb. Beautiful verb. Okay? I don't do this too much, so here it is. Aggressive, aorist means an entrance into a new state of being. You, you enter into something that you so were not before. When you believe in Christ, you enter into this newness of life. But it's subjunctive. The subjunctive part of the verb indicates that it's not always, you don't always see that reality. It's you might live. You have the possibility of living. I remember talking with a pastor about this one once because I was just trying to rack my brain and be like, okay, so is Paul saying we're all going to live the new life? Definitely. Or that some of us don't live the new life all the time, but we want to, we have the possibility of. I mean, I'm just kind of like, how does this verb fit together? And, and I'm still thinking about it. But I know that aggressive aorist means it's an entrance into a new state of being. Resurrected life starts now extends through your death and lasts forever in eternity. Resurrected life begins now. So, however you're living your life, it ought to be in a new kind of way so that the world might see and know that testimony they gave about Christ is true because I remember who he used to be. And now there's newness of life. I mean, that's why sometimes I get a little bit 
You ever heard someone say, I'm just a sinner like everybody else? I think I've said that, you know, I'm just a sinner, saved by grace. That's partly true, only the Bible doesn't call me a sinner anymore. Like, like the sinner was before I believed in Christ. Now I'm the saint, you know? I mean, I just kind of wrestle with that because when I say that to people, and I know I've said that to people, am I telling them that, that not much has changed in my life? You're not going to see much change in my life. I'm still a sinner. I mean, I know I still sin, but am I sending a message to them that they shouldn't count on seeing resurrected life in me? I don't want to send that message. I, I, I want the kind of thing where um, I used to feel weird about it, but now I don't feel so bad. Like when I'm, I was, I was, at, I was at, in college, Moody, you know, and, and I remember working at a law firm, and, and I would be like in the office with some attorney, and he's like, he picks up the phone, and I'm like waiting on him to get off the phone, he's talking to one of his clients, and he's just, maybe it wasn't a client, it must have been another attorney. It wasn't a client, he wouldn't do that with a client. It was another attorney, and he's just chewing this guy out, swearing at him, you know, cussing him out, puts the phone down and says, and looks at me and says, oh, I'm sorry, Niall, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> you know? Like, I'm not even a pastor yet. I'm just in Bible school, right? You know, you can say what you want. It's, it's all right, you know? Um, do people do that with you sometimes? Like, oh, the Christian's in the room. We've got to better behave well, you know? Um, I get that. And that's okay. Because that's a recognition that there's something different about me and about you. What they're saying is, there's a newness of life that I see in you and it makes me feel a little bit awkward, like maybe I shouldn't swear around you. That's okay. That's God working on you. <laughs> I want you to feel awkward. It's good. It's good. Um, resurrected life. Um, let's keep going. Ingressive heiress. I hope, I hope you wrote that down. That's good stuff. Ingressive heiress. Um, verse uh, 13. Okay, so so now... The, the witnesses get risen from the dead. I mean, you, you wouldn't want to be the guy. I mean, remember it says all the different nations are like coming by and like looking at them, you know, like, hey, there's the dead guys. It's like, it's like a national shrine all of a sudden, right? You got to see the dead guys that plague the earth. You, but you don't want to be the guy walking by like laughing, you know, and then when they wake up, you know, like, hey, you know, <laughs> that's a bad moment, right? <laughs> there they are. They're alive again. They're taken up into the clouds to be with Jesus. Jesus says, come up here. And then it says, after that, at that very hour, again, you don't want to be there at that moment, there's a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. The third woe is coming soon. That's how we know we're in the trumpet judgments. That's the woes. Um, we're in the middle of the trumpet judgments. Fourthly and lastly, God verifies your words through his judgment. Not through your judgment of the world, through his judgment of the world. Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed. In other words, a lot of times the wrath of God is hidden, but it's being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. There's a lot of truth suppression in America today. There's a lot of teaching contrary to the scriptures in America today. And God's wrath is being revealed against that. I have a really hard time when uh, 
I'm thinking of like the New Orleans missions team goes down and, and, and we're still serving and trying to help the, from the Hurricane Katrina um, disaster. I have a hard time when Christians say, well, and they start proclaiming to the world, that's God's judgment. We all know that's God's judgment. seems like our response needs to be, we're going to help. But in the middle of that, I can't deny that disasters happen because God is revealing his wrath. From hell. I, can't, I can't deny that part of it. God's wrath is being revealed. That doesn't mean I get to go on the news and tell everybody that they, you know, the whole of America needs to repent, not just New Orleans, you know. We all need that. And Jesus said that when, when the tower fell on people in, in Israel. Jesus is like, you think there were sinners in all of us? You know, not speaking of himself, of course. We all better repent, Jesus says. You all better repent. Um, it's not just New Orleans that has a sexual depravity problem. Um, so we go and help them as Christians. We have compassion on them. But God's wrath is being revealed and people will experience that wrath in their lives in profound ways. And that's when you as a Christian get to come in and speak about the mercy and compassion of God on them. God doesn't want to come in wrath. He'd rather come in mercy. And that's our message. When people's life breaks, it's run to God. He cares about your pain. Even the pain that results from your own sin, he cares about that. He cares about it. Okay. Seventh uh, trumpet happens. Um, I want to close with this. I need a, need a Bible. I have all my stuff on my iPad. I don't have a Bible up here. Need that. Thank you. Revelation 11. Look at the end of 11. Now, I'm not, gonna, um, I'm not going to go super deep in this, but this is a cool way to close this passage. So our, our um, uh, job is to, is to testify to the truth. We are the witnesses here. Okay, it's not just two prophets in the end times. It's all of us. We have that task. So then you see in uh, verse 15, by the way, this is the midpoint of Revelation as a book. We're like halfway done. And it wasn't even that painful, was it? Okay, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. This is the seventh trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were sealed, uh, who were seated on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those uh, who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. And with that, I mean, I feel like we could say the end, right? Seventh trumpet, again, seems to usher in the kingdom of God in a full way. Like, really, you could just close it and go, and Christ reigns forever and ever. The end. And yet we're not done yet, but it is a climax of sorts in the center of the book. Christ is going to come back, 
and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of God. That's singular, actually. I put a plural on it. The kingdom, singular, of God. Um, and if you say, what in the world does that mean? Yeah, I, I, I think I think the seals, trumpets, and the bulls that we haven't even looked at yet are John seeing the seven-year tribulation from different angles, different angles, different perspectives. And this, again, is, is this is the end. We could close the book and say, now Christ reigns. That's it. But he's going he's gonna to now say, I want to show you the seven-year tribulation from a different angle, the angle of the bulls. What about the Ark of the Covenant? Well, two things here I want to show you before we go. Um, can you show uh, 1 Kings 19? I almost forgot 1 Kings 19. Um, how many people died in the earthquake in Revelation 11? 7,000 people, which means the majority were saved from the earthquake. And the majority gave glory to God. The majority. First uh, Kings 19. This is during the ministry of Elijah. Again, the, the, the two witnesses are similar to Elijah. Um, yet I, this is God. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. That's talking about 7,000 faithful people among the majority. The majority were faithless. The majority worshipped a false god. The minority, 7,000, remained faithful to the true God. In Revelation 11, we have this reversal where it's like 7,000 died where God said, you didn't believe me, you killed my prophets, you're done. Earthquake, they died. You're done. And the opposite happens where the majority believes and becomes faithful to God. I don't know about you, but that is... That's as cool as it gets for me, you know. Like God confirms his testimony to the majority of people in that Jerusalem area. They believe. And in my understanding of giving glory to God, to me that sounds like they are saved. That's exciting. And you've got to think those two prophets, now they're with Christ, they're going, that's exactly what we wanted to see happen. We want to see people saved. That's what we want to. Ark of the Covenant, and then... Um, We'll close it down. Worship team, I cut you off. I'm sorry. I got a little excited. Um, okay. Um, so we, we are going to close in a minute, though. Um, Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant was thought to be destroyed during Nebuchadnezzar's reign when, when he was, he was uh, looting Israel and destroying things right and left. Uh, I think the Ethiopians say that they have it. Is this true? Have you heard this? They have this building, this, this place under guard. But no, no one's seen it, though. Um, it's thought to be destroyed. Can you put up Jeremiah 3.16? I love this. I love it. Why do we see the Ark of the Covenant at this point in Revelation? Why do we see it after the seventh trumpet, when, when the seven-year tribulation seems to be over now, seventh trumpet's blown, Jesus has returned, it's all his kingdom now, and look, here's the Ark of the Covenant. God's temple opens and you see it. Haven't seen it in a long time, but now we see it. Jeremiah 3.16. Uh, in those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say, they'll no longer say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, it will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time, they'll call Jerusalem, 
We've been talking about Jerusalem this morning, by the way. The throne of the Lord and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. Do you hear the echo there of what we've just read this morning? They're in Jerusalem. All these people are turning themselves over to God. They're no longer following their evil hearts. They're following, they're giving glory to God after that terrible earthquake. He says, people aren't even going to care about the ark anymore. I mean, we kind of care. I'd like to see it. But there's like, they're not even, at, that, at that day, ultimately, when God comes to reign, nobody's going to care about the ark of the covenant anymore. Now, I know we're not Israelites. We don't care about the ark in a big way like they did. But go with it. <laughs> the ark, it says, why? Because they'll call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. The ark represented God's throne on earth ark of the covenant in the holy of holies that represented his throne his rule and now god is ruling jesus is ruling in a visible huge supreme sort of way you don't need the ark anymore you've got jesus ruling the world that is amazing and so the ark is shown in the temple to show god's rule has started in in, in the biggest way possible. I mean, I know God rules now. He rules today. But there's a day coming when he's going to make every wrong right. He's going to fix everything in this world, and he's going to rule in a visible way. That's when you see the ark again. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we we love you, and, and we love your rule. We, we, we want to see your rule happen in more visible ways in our community. We want to see people change from darkness to light. Help us. Help us be witnesses. Help us love you and share your word with people. Oh God, I, I pray, even if there's people here this morning that don't know you, I pray that they would. I pray you'd bring them to their knees to the place where they can say, Jesus died on the cross for my sin and he was raised from the dead. God, I pray for us that when we don't see the fruit of our words when we don't see that they're accepted by people and we're tempted to be discouraged, I pray we remember Revelation 11 and remember that you, God, with all of your authority, are verifying our words. You're working it out. And so a gentle, respectful response to people gets magnified by a thousand, God, when you verify it through miracles, through resurrected life, through judgment, through death and suffering. God, use us, use your church. Verify our words. Help us be true witnesses, even as your son was a true witness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.